Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for March has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, that's C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Zachary Kane. He's a uh, designer and a writer working at Heist in Toronto. How's it going, Zach? I'm good. How are you, Brett? I am good. I, I, I can't think of any reason why I'm as scattered right now as I am. But, well, we should talk about... Okay, we're going to jump right into the ADD discussion. Cool. Yeah, sounds good. Let's jump right in. Okay. Um, so you you have ADHD, much like me. I do. And the difference is you've recently been working on weight, non-medication ways to, to, uh, to work with it. That's right. I've actually been off meds for almost a year now, uh, ever since I started my uh, job at Heist. So what, first, what led you to do this? Uh, I was having problems getting over the side effects of the meds. Like I was having big trouble with sleeping and eating. Um, and at, at a certain point, I decided, you know what? Like quality of life is more important to me than like maximum performance. So I decided to to stop. Okay. So what have you been doing instead? Uh, well, I think part of it is honestly like having. Part of it is having like actual responsibility and accountability. Like when I started my new job, um, you know, I was thrown right into the deep end of like you need to do this, these things. This is my first like real job after school, um, so I found that that automatically kind of took the edge off like ten percent of of the ADD problems. Um, but beyond that, I think it's just instituting more practices of of being mindful. Um, no, you know, writing things down in notebooks more often, being very diligent about like creating routines for myself um, to so I don't have to remember things and I don't have to rely on myself. I can rely on the tools. That's been in a nutshell. That's really all of it. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna I'm rearranging our topics on the fly here because uh, one of the things you talked about just now was writing things down. And you also have uh, an interest in uh, quantified self tools that I think probably plays into this pretty heavily. It definitely does. Yeah. So what kind of tools are you using in, in, uh, in the area of quantified self? Uh, it kind of falls into two or three different categories. Um, I'm big into the personal quantified self stuff. I have a Fitbit, so you know, I track steps. I, uh, I track what I eat with my fitness pal that I think your previous guest mentioned as well um you know uh money that you spend things like that so that's one area kind of just getting as a hobby you know kind of um tracking things that i do uh and and to see if if there's useful data to be gleaned i I haven't really figured out if there is or not yet uh the other area is uh like that routine building so uh errands like writing down when i should do errands and give myself calendar events for going to the gym and um, taking out garbage and, and like when deadlines are due for, for rent and things like that. That area of quantified self is what really interests me as a practice, as, as habit forming and, and um, routine building, which is generally where I've been very weak as, sure. a, human, as a human being. <laughs> yeah, I have the same issues, and I rely on what I would call an external brain 
Yes. I rely on note-taking systems and calendars and reminders and things that kind of take the responsibility out of my hands because I am absolutely horrible at remembering just the basic things I need to do every day. Absolutely. The idea of the external brain, um, while kind of scary, is, is also super interesting. Like, if I can offload all of that um, responsibility to tools, machinery, like technology, then I, I don't have to worry that like I'm missing stuff or that I, I don't have to rely on myself as much. Sure. Uh, I remember when Evernote first launched, they, uh, they, their, their press release was that they wanted to be your digital brain. And I remember exactly how much that intrigued me at the time. You can find you can find my old article on on the unofficial Apple weblog, uh, the very first release of Evernote, and uh, and I did an interview with Phil Lieben about the idea of reducing stress and and re- removing the responsibility to remember information by storing it in a very secure a place where you knew you could always find it on any platform. And I, I think those kind of tools have have become very essential, not just to people like you and I who can't remember, you know, to tie our shoes before we leave the house, but to people who are doing massive amounts of research and keeping track of everything just becomes unfeasible. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to be the guy that had everything in his brain, and like all through high school and, and university, that was me, and that was so hard. But I never stuck to any of these tools. Like I'd use, I'd use a paper notebook for a week and then I wouldn't touch it again. Or I'd use an app on, on whatever primitive smartphone I had at the time. And then I'd never use it. So I'd try and keep everything in my head and invariably things get lost. So I, I've finally reached the point where I have to use these tools. And, and so I've made myself keep a calendar and, and use note-taking apps. And you know, it, I've managed to stick with them through you know, keep, trying to keep this routine. And it's just been a big help in terms of stress, just nothing else, just like mental stress or cognitive load. Sure. Do you find that the act of whether you're writing things down or you're tracking things with a Fitbit, um, do you find that simply the act of tracking it makes you more mindful? That makes you remember, you don't even have to go back and reference things because the act of recording them helps your brain make associations that help you remember things? Absolutely. And I think that's why for a long time I didn't stick with them because I would start writing things down like three tasks a day, write write down things I have to do. Then I would remember them later and I'd be like, oh, I don't need this notebook. I I can remember it. I'm good at this. I'm good at remembering stuff. And then I'd toss it away (laughs) and then I'd I'd, the cycle would start again a month later. I think absolutely, Um, especially with the, the stuff like the Fitbit where there's a competitive aspect, right? Uh, so like if, you know, four or five people or not four or five, three or four people in the office where I work have a Fitbit. So we're all kind of on the same, you know, we can see each other's daily step counts and stuff. So when I'm looking, you know, when I look at at my watch, which is, I use the Fitbit as a watch. Now I look at it, I check the time, I click the button again and see the number of steps. I'm like, Oh, I'm only at 4,000 steps today. I bet Oscar is at like 8,000. I better walk home. So that feeds into it as well. Nice. Um, so with all of the, uh, the data that you're collecting through these tools, have you found, uh, have you gotten to a point where, where you have enough data compiled to see patterns and, and get a benefit from that? In some areas, yes. And others, no. Um, 
in terms of something like sleep tracking, which is I, I have the Fitbit that does that. Um, yes, I do start to recognize patterns, and um, and I, I'm like I'm able to work towards repairing the deficits. Like I'll notice that on days where there's heavier construction outside my apartment, uh, and the lights are on, like the crane lights are on, I won't sleep as well. So I'm I'm working. I'm getting a pair. I'm getting some blinds for the for the the windows to to fix that. I noticed that. Um, when I, I've actually, you know, noticed when you're out later that I don't sleep as well, or when I'm out later, I don't sleep as well. So those kind of, um, correlations become very obvious. Um, yeah, that's handy. Whether I act on it is a totally different story. Sometimes I'll still go out late anyway, but no, the knowing is, is a lot of the, well, knowing is half the battle. I used to have, um, an apartment in Minneapolis and it was on a street corner and there was, uh, uh, stoplight that was usually set to like four-way stop blink mode oh no no it was it was perfect it would lull me to sleep but if it stopped blinking if it went out or it went solid red i would wake up and it took me forever to realize that that's what was causing me sleep problems at that point in my life wow yeah well because i didn't have blinds either (laughs) oh wow wow yeah there's a there's another apartment building going up like 20 feet from my window. So when they're working at night, the lights are on on the crane and it's... They work at night? Um, no, I think they leave the light on some nights oh, because okay. of like some security thing. I don't know. There was a notice in, in the elevator one day. I didn't read it. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, that's actually really weird. So you, were, you would already be asleep and then the, the light pattern would change and it would wake you up. Yeah, well, it's the same as... Uh... Like the time I've spent in New York, uh, like I get so used to the traffic and siren sounds that if everything goes quiet for a second, it, it, it'll startle me out of my sleep. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. You just get so used to a certain noise bed. Right. Or, or lighting pattern that it, it can really disturb you. Yeah. I'm less, I'm less, well, I live basically in the country now and nighttime is silent and pitch black and and I sleep really well with that. Um, the sound, if my dogs leave the room and their breathing isn't like omnipresent anymore, that wakes me up now. But that's like the only disturbance I get these days. Okay. I was actually going to ask you about the, uh, the animal scenario because I, I recently just got a cat. Um, and he, uh, I, we initially tried to, to keep him out of the bedroom, but he'd just start yelling and be awful. Yeah, you can't do that. So we, we now we have him hanging around there, um, which is a lot better than keeping him out. But, you know, then he walks all over you and whatever. But I was, I was going to ask you, like, how that works. How does how do the animals, the autonomous creatures in your house kind of affect your, your sleep? The, rarely, rarely do they. Um, the, the parrot goes to sleep early and is silent all night. Um, then the cats do their rounds, especially the Siamese. He'll like walk over my head and down my body and everything. But that's kind of like the good night ritual. Right. Cause then he'll curl up in like the crook of my knee and just sleep the entire night. The, the German shepherd, he, he tends to sleep and snore a little and the, the pit bull just conks out right away. Um, but the snoring, it's kind of like that noise bed in the city where you just, you get used to it. Some nights, there are some nights if, if I stay up late and then go to bed. I'll go to bed and I'll hear the entire cacophony of breathing. <laughs> you know, like two or three dogs, three cats, and a wife. 
and all of these different breathing patterns and sounds and some snoring and I won't be able to fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. I but don't if know. I go to bed with everyone else, I acclimate and I just fall asleep. That it, sleep is so weird because you 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 can just get onto some weird track where you're thinking about one weird noise in the room and then your whole night's shot. And then I just get up and then I end up not going back to bed. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was like for me. Just jumping back to ADD maybe for a minute. That's what it was like for me when I was on meds. I would uh, I would prowl the apartment all night. Uh, if I wasn't, I was often unable to sleep, but I'd just walk around, I'd do work. And because w- once you try for an hour and then you haven't been able to sleep, you're probably not going to get to sleep. Exactly. You know, yeah. there's a window. And if you miss that window, you're then up for the next cycle. So you haven't had this problem since you quit meds? The insomnia? No, no. I- I'm not a great sleeper, though. Generally, I'm a very light sleeper, I think. Yeah, me um, too. But uh, no, I can always get some sleep. Uh, that's cool I mean, it's cool with the fitbit like it'll tell me like you nominally were asleep for eight hours but you're you know you actually only got 3.5 hours of whatever they consider to be deep sleep so i'm trying to get that number up trying to get that efficiency percentage uh up and they let you track that which is pretty maybe maybe i will reconsider sleep tracking uh if i get off of my meds but right now uh i find the sleep tracking just nothing but disturbing Mm mm-hmm because they tell me, you know, if you don't sleep this much every night, you're going to die this many years earlier. <laughs> oh, you don't want that stress. Yeah. 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 If you can't, like, sleep some of the things, you have to let it happen to you. You can't force it to happen. You can't, like, try and sleep. It's not going to work. Right. My goal is just to get so much done on the nights I have insomnia that I don't need those extra years on my life. <laughs> you make it worthwhile. Yeah. You get your money's worth. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm going to take a quick break for our first sponsor. And then, uh, and then come back to kind of this topic again. Cool. So our first sponsor today is MailChimp.com, easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. They help you customize your sign-up form to match your brand, so you can share it on your website and integrate it into your Facebook page. You can even collect sign-ups from an iPad or a laptop. Importing an existing list into MailChimp is a snap, no matter how it's formatted. And you can personalize everything your subscribers see, including sign-up forms and confirmation emails. There's never been a better time to try MailChimp. With 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails per month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5x5 to learn more. Okay, so what do you do? Uh, what, what's your day job like, your average day? What kind of, uh, what kind of work do you do? Uh, uh, it's actually a lot of different stuff. Um, on our website, I'm a product designer, but really I'm doing, um, kind of design and writing and we're on the whiteboard a lot, kind of sketching stuff out and, and, uh, I guess it's, you know, user experience design. Um, but I, day to day, I'm doing a lot of copywriting, a lot of like wireframing and, and like drawing out flow maps and stuff, different design stuff. I don't get into visual so much. I don't really do a lot of visual design, so it's more um, earlier than that, kind of thinking about sure. how a designer will go through a flow and, and writing copy and, and things like that. What was your, uh, what was your major at university? Um, for two years, it was creative writing, and then I decided I didn't want to be a writer and I switched into design, did design, did design degree, uh, then left and became a writer. <laughs> that sounds exactly right. Yeah. 
So do you write in your free time as well? That's the thing. I don't. I really didn't enjoy writing fiction or, or poetry. Um, and I'm, I seem entirely incapable of writing a blog. I, so I actually don't do a lot of writing um, outside, okay. outside of work. So what do you do on the side? Uh, web development. I, I am a code. Yeah. Do you relax in the evening by writing code? Sometimes, yes. Um, absolutely. That is definitely, uh, something I do a lot of. I do a lot of, uh, I read Twitter a lot and read a lot of web dev articles and, um, participate in that kind of community a lot as well. Um, but once in a while, less often recently, but, but I'll definitely sit down and, and code something up or hack up some weird project. Do you, do you have a lot of side projects kind of in the queue or are you a person who just tackles what, uh, what seems interesting at the time? Oh, there's a queue. Um, there's a very large queue that uh, I get to very slowly. <laughs> do, how, do you, how do you prioritize your like side projects that aren't vital to your existence, you know, your income? How do, you, how do you choose what to work on at any given time? That is often um, uh, whatever strikes my fancy. I don't really have a system for that. Um, so... It'll be like flavor of the week a lot. Like this week, the flavor of the week is uh, like a an app for or an app or a website or something for um, generating salad recipes. Okay. Uh, I I was chatting with my friends at work and and they were we were going for lunch and and they had there's a salad bar at a supermarket near work and we'd all gotten these salads and my salad looked great and their salads looked pretty uninspired so we started talking about oh yeah what if well, you could recommend me a salad recipe and then like, put that'd be a great little site a little side project so now i'm in the middle of thinking about how to make a salad generator website and i've already bought the domain um i actually don't remember what it is i'm gonna check real quick uh but yeah so that's the flavor of the week and next week it'll probably be something else and and saladmaker.co or whatever it is might never happen or or it might happen i don't know as an aside why wh- wh- I- I don't get salads. Like my wife can make a salad and I'll love it. But if I try to replicate it when she's out of town, it, it feels like eating rabbit food. I just, I don't, how do you make an inspired salad? I think the key is variety, right? Like if you if your salad's like, okay, there's a lot of green stuff and then a dressing and maybe a nut, it's not going to go so well. But if there's, Lots going on. I think that's what makes a good salad. I mean, obviously it has to be, you know, they all have to be harmonious ingredients, but I think the key is to go outside what you might normally consider a salad. Huh. Yeah, I got to work on that. Yeah, nuts and seeds. There's a lot of variety in nuts and seeds. Yeah, but they're so hard to pick up with your fork. That's true. That that is true. Um, I, I, I gravitate more towards the seed side than the, the nut side, so that could, they kind of sure. stick to right, the, the leaf. dressing and the yeah. leaf. Yeah, it all kind of comes together, and you can almost kind of just pick up a, a blob of it. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like uh, like pecans drive me insane. Oh yeah, because they'll crumble. Yeah, and and you can't the, uh, they just run away from your fork anyway. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, salad uh, side projects. So I, I wasn't expecting you to have a system. I think very few people bother developing a system for their own hobbies. But uh, do you find you tackle the easiest ones first, or do you find you tackle things that have the most challenge to them? 
Um, I don't know. I think what I do is find something. Like if one side project requires me to learn something completely new, I'll do that and do and try and learn it. I have trouble learning by doing in a lot of those scenarios. Like I'll open up eight tabs, like learn Node.js. Let's let's do the code school thing, and then I'll never get around to the side project. But I I tend to gravitate towards things that require like net new knowledge. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm the same way. So I tend to tackle projects just because I don't know how to do them. Yeah, I find I do that as well. Do you have a system for now that now that you're doing uh, well, now that your things are are more than than just side projects possibly? What uh, do you have more of a system now? Um, it's developing. Like with my side projects, I always I basically just kept a task paper file of ideas, and then once an idea was uh, started, it would become its own task paper file. Uh, with a link, like a wiki link. And um, I guess I just I would just prioritize them as I looked at them and just based on my, my interest level in a project. And some would fall to the bottom, some would rise to the top, and I'd take a peek at the file and say, okay, the first thing on the list looks good, or I'm going to move that down the list a little because I'm losing interest in it. But with my daily projects now, things that, that do matter to my income, things like Marked, and things like writing. Um, I tend to block out entire days right now. I'm like, today is a writing day or today is a coding day. And, uh, and I found that working to some extent. Sometimes I have to just say, I can't write today, so I'll code instead. Uh, it has to be flexible. But, um, but I have found that telling myself, you don't have to code today, you can just write today or vice versa, has been, uh, has been helpful. Instead of trying to do everything, eh, that that's it works. cool. I mean, I think blocking off a day gives you a lot of freedom, right? I mean, yeah. If you end Instead up of trying down, to hour by hour, yeah, like if you go down a rabbit hole when you're coding something, you don't feel bad because you didn't get to the other thing. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's smart. I have to I have to cut myself some slack on that stuff because I will go down rabbit holes. I will get distracted, and uh, and feeling guilty about that is very stressful. Yeah, and I mean, and for you especially, uh, just doing what you do, those rabbit holes end up being, you know, fruitful all the time, right? You <laughs> kind of want to almost cultivate that. Uh, they often end up being, yes, uh, larger than I thought they would be. That's what. That's one of the things I find that that's like super inspiring about about what you do and like just your online kind of presence and and what you've been working on is that you manage to turn all of these like seemingly futile or 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 minute problems into actual projects that are actually cool and and you you know it's all useful right right well what what keeps me going once i develop an idea and i have it working for myself that's that's where where i would normally stop but then i find out that other people have the same problem i do and i end up spending time polishing these rough projects into tools that other people can use and the fact that i get thank you notes from people who use these tools and, you know, even donations sometimes it keeps me going with those kind of uh, side projects that become project projects. Yeah. That's awesome. I just have to get better at charging for them. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, to you, they were just little diversions that turned into things to help you, but they if they have wide appeal, then, you know, that it, it becomes something else. 
It's just that they usually start as command line tools. Right. No. And ninety percent of the tool. people who would benefit from it aren't. They're not command line people. Right. Of course. So it it comes to how profitable would it be for me to turn this into a GUI, like a full on application? Would it would it still benefit you know people as much as the amount of work that goes into it? And then uh, and then I get stuck in this nether world of command line versus GUI and yeah. It, it gets messy. Did Marked start as a command line tool? It did not. Marked started as a commercial application. Oh, that's I cool. knew okay. I knew from the time I started coding, and that's why that's why it was easy to make money on Marked because I intended it to be a commercial tool from the from the get go. And I think that that affected the way that I developed it. That affected the way that I thought about problem solving in it. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, things like my recent tool doing uh that uh that did definitely not start off as something I intended for anyone else to use and the the process of turning it into a more mass consumable tool has been complex because I really I didn't take into account other people when I was solving problems. Right, it's just it's suited for your machine, your setup, and your exact exactly. way and my needs and and my habits. Yeah, but uh, but the feedback on GitHub has been really useful on that. Finding you know people that are just like, well, this is a really cool idea, but it's only useful to me if it does this. And then you have to stop and you think about it, mm-hmm. and you're like, does that fit into what I had envisioned for this, or is that just a different application they need to go find? And uh, and I've been through that process quite a few times in the last week or two, uh, just figuring out if. If a request matters enough to me and fits enough with the original vision to say, okay, you're right, let's let's put the time into coding this or not. Well, you need to have a vision, too. Sometimes, like, a little thing you may, might make, like a little script, that's like, oh, this solves my need, that's done. But then as soon as it becomes widely available and people start making, you know, pull requests and, and writing issues, you need to figure out what the vision is. You're like, oh, is this a thing now? I need to think about this from a from the perspective of a of a product almost and that's a lot of overhead i think and i've never done this but i think it would actually be a really good idea to um actually block out like a a thesis statement for a project and say this is what this is this is what it's intended to be this is what the potential roadmap for it is and then when people bring those requests you can compare it to the outline that you set up and everyone can see it and say, okay, I understand what this tool is meant to do, but maybe you could add this. And then you have kind of a, like a base. I should do that. That's a really cool idea. I see a lot of the time what I'll do, uh, and it's, it's completely backwards, but it's just what I find fun, I guess, to start. Whenever I have a side project that I'm thinking about, I'll, I'll start with like the, the tagline and the name and kind of the value prop first because I'm not psyched up to start coding it yet or or it, like a lot of the time my ideas don't start with f- from a from a code perspective they start from that um outward facing how do people going to going to consume this or use this even if it's just for me so I'll almost right. always come up with that tagline first and I think that's close to what you might be talking about kind of yeah right where you, like you you what's the mission statement of this little tiny thing or what's it trying to do and then once once that's out there 
it's it's not you saying no to the issues and, and like sh- shutting people down. It's well, it's not what it's supposed to do. It, <laughs> right. You know, it's it's a little bit of plausible deniability, and it's and it's focusing. Do you do you find it easy to put yourself in the shoes? And this is part of your job. So, uh, to put yourself in the shoes of the end user and figure out how people are going to use it before you do like any testing. I like to think I do, though I know I have a blind spot when it comes to assuming people, particularly, are, are as tech savvy as I am. Right. I always sort of overestimate um, the complicate the complicatedness yeah. of of products of things of, of and that's really easy to do. All you have to do is take for granted one knowledge point. Oh yeah, and all of a sudden you have you have created a system that people can't even start using. And it could be something as simple as, oh, most people assume that orange is going to mean you're getting close to the limit of something, right? <laughs> instead of green, and then that assumption cascades into a whole design or a whole interaction, and that that might be unfounded. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. These little, these things that we take for granted because of our own prior experience that could be completely different for someone else. And I think a lot of that is very software specific. There are a lot of, a lot of product categories where you could be designing and you, you, you have the leeway to say, this is like a new paradigm or this is how people are going to use it. And you don't have to worry about feature requests and all of these things because it's a product that does what it's supposed to do. But in software, there's always, always room for another feature yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you listened to um, ATP podcast, but a couple, they've, they've been doing feedback for a while on John Syracuse's bit about how uh, making software is the hardest thing people can do, and we won't get into that, but that kind of reminds me of, of their conversation in that when you're creating something that doesn't have a grounding in reality, like physical reality, um, you kind of assume that people are as used to the software world as they are with the physical world like you might be whereas right. you know I, I grew up with computers so i'm very comfortable moving around in in this world just like i would be walking around outside but most people only have the physical and they don't they aren't as i guess as fluent in in those other kind of scenarios so you kind of think oh it's just as easy as walking outside of course gravity's real but no, people don't understand that with <laughs> software. People don't understand that this thing that you've made um, acts a certain way because you saw the hamburger icon in a lot of websites that doesn't, doesn't follow right. that way at all. Yeah, well, and I have to say that developing on a Mac gives you a certain... People are, are used to a certain design paradigm. And if you follow the rules, not, not the rules, but if you follow the standards kind of set out by Apple and and mimicked by most programs, you can you can cover a lot of bases that I haven't found consistent in Windows platforms. So it's almost having a it's like having a grid when you're designing these these set of rules and expectations that give you a way to access the user's you know knowledge. If if someone uses a Mac at all you can assume that they understand what certain types of buttons are going to do. Yeah, of course. And unless yeah. you go and completely mess up the patterns, you, you can make something that anyone can use. Yeah, a red button in the top left is going to do what you think it does if you're right. on a Mac. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, existing knowledge you can, you can bring to bear. 
But clicking that red button, even in Apple apps, doesn't always do the same thing. Sometimes it'll close a window. Sometimes it'll close an app. Oh, man. I, that... So there's that expectation that gets destroyed there. And I've, I actually am a fairly recent convert to uh, the Mac. Up until 2011 or 10, I was a Windows user. Sure. Um, and that is the one thing that, to this day, I, I don't like. I don't agree with. Or if, I, you close, if you close the last window of an application, you think it should quit the app? Yes, I do. I really, really do. I'll take that to my deathbed. Okay. I don't know. Uh, it's th- just, it's, I'm so ingrained to thinking like, oh, Alt F4 or, or hit the red button and the app closes. Of course, I understand. Like, it makes so much sense that the app would have multiple windows and instances, and you can open up two Word documents, and but the app remains open. But it's just so built into the way I think about computers at this point that uh, to this day, when I close like a Chrome window, but Chrome is still in the in the dock, uh, I just feel like, oh, that's not right. You will get over it. Like to me, I like I like having to hit Command Q because then I know that I'm exiting an application. But you take something like System Preferences, where there is only one window, there will only ever be one window. If you Command W or click the red button in System Preferences, it will quit. And that's you know that's a setting when you when you des- when you develop a Cocoa app, you can tell it quit after last window closes. And okay. so that's a, it's a design choice. But if I'm working in something like Chrome where I don't even know how many windows I have open at any given time. And closing a window suddenly quits when I didn't expect it to because there weren't any other windows left when I thought there were. I would find that frustrating. That's a really good point. And I, I recognize that same behavior in me. Like, that's how I use Chrome as well. I'll, I'll command Q out, um, but I treat windows as disposable so there could be a lot open. Exactly. So it's already starting to happen maybe to me where I'm getting used to it. But uh, when I stop and think about it, it's still, it's like, oh, it's kind of... But I, right. I remember very well the conversion from Windows to Mac and that being a huge sticking point for me. Mm-hmm. But somehow over the years, it did become intuitive. Well, the, a lot of other apps have that convention as well, like Adobe uh, applications. I'll open it up, I'll hit the red button, and the whole app closes. So I think that's what keeps me like, from fully ad- adopting it is that I'm so often in Illustrator or InDesign or something, and then I'll close it there, and then the whole, there's only ever one window in those applications too so well if you open if you open a file in a new window like in adobe in uh photoshop cs6 oh you if just you open a new window and then close it it won't quit the app it's only when you close that main window but you're right i mean it does when you close the main window it does quit right yes uh, i think i have the setting turned on where it puts the gray background on because that reminds me yeah. of, of the windows days of home <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting, right. those little differences, and you can count on, like you said, you can count on all that knowledge, but uh, someone's, it's, you can't really, not, everyone is not going to have this, that same experience and that same uh, knowledge to draw on. It's an you have problem. to have a starting point, though. Yeah. You can't, you can't design every website or every application assuming that nobody knows anything. Like, that would be, you would... It would be so fundamentally frustrating to people who did know mm-hmm. if, if they had to walk through, if, if they had to be handheld through the entire thing every time. So you have to figure out what baseline there is for your target audience. Yeah, there's always that balance to be struck for sure. And it's really just about knowing your audience down right. pat, right? Knowing it well. Right. And that's where I always feel. And that's why I asked the question initially is, 
I used to think that, oh, I can put myself in the mind of an average user and figure out how to make something that's easy to use. And I failed so many times that I realized, you know what, I, I'm so far removed from the average user at this point in my life that I can't, I can't fathom what they need. So I gave up and I left that to smarter people than me. Well, I, I, I wouldn't call you know, us particularly smart in the area. It's just about talking to a lot of people. I mean, half of our job is like talking to, to customers. That's the only way to really do it is just get out there and talk to actual Well, there you go. I, I don't like talking to people. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I try and leave that to, to some of my coworkers, <laughs> but you got to go out there sometimes. All right. Well, I'm going to take our second sponsor break and then top three. All right. So this episode is also brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPRINGTIME. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust so you can really create your own space online. Everything is drag and drop, and it's easy to add content from your desktop and even rearrange elements of the, of the content within a page. Squarespace makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device because every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design. You can easily connect Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, and many more web and social services. Squarespace also has e-commerce on their platform, so if you want to set up a shop and sell things, you can in just a few minutes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need some help, there are over 70 Squarespace employees on the customer care team based in New York City. They're available for live chat during the week and have really fast email support through, throughout day and night. As I said earlier, you can try Squarespace for free, no credit card required, and if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure to get your 10% off and support the show by using the offer code SPRINGTIME. So thanks to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Systematic. All right, Zach, what's your first top pick this week? <clears throat> okay. Uh, my first top pick is an app for the Mac called Asepsis. A-S-E-P-S-I-S. And uh, it's, it solves a, kind of a niche uh, problem. Um, what it basically does is, is hide those DS store files you see in every folder on your Mac when you have show hidden files enabled. Right. Uh, which I do. So I do you know, web development and stuff like that. So I have hidden files shown. Um, and it drives me nuts seeing these little .ds underscore store files. And you delete them and they come back. I think they have something to do with uh, like folder information, like metadata. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's mostly your view information. Like if you're in column or... Oh, uh, okay. Or like icon view. It, it records that. And anytime you change it, it'll write a new one. Right. So this little app just hides them. Even though you have other hidden files shown, this just somehow gets rid of them. Do you know what a sepsis means? It sounds like some kind of disease. It's actually the absence of bacteria, viruses, and other microorganisms, according to my OS X dictionary. Mm, oh, that's good. And the, little, yeah. the icon of the app is like a little virus ghost thing. <laughs> yeah, that, that's cool. Nice. That is that is a really handy tool. Um, I have plenty of tools that will uh, recursively delete those files, but you're right. There's no point uh, on a Mac because they will always come back. Mm -hmm. I do have tools that I find very handy that will remove 
those files and and any resource forks that still exist um, when you zip a when you zip a folder up. Oh, so like when you zip, make sure you don't also zip in the DS store. Right. That is that is really cool actually because that happens to me all the time. Yeah, I'll send you some links. I can't remember exactly which tools are doing that for me right now, but that's cool. Nice. So a sepsis from yeah. and it's from the same people that make um, Total Finder. That's Binary cool. Age. I didn't know that. And and Total Finder actually has this tool built in as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I've so. never actually. Um, I never started using the Finder tabs, and I don't use an alternative Finder. I just, I don't know. I didn't really. Uh, I, I thought forever that I'd I'd love using them, but I actually end up never using them. Like in in Mavericks. I use tabs nonstop. And I use a combination of Total Finder tabs and Finder tabs. We won't go into my own oh, neuroses oh, there. Um, but the, th- the reason I use Total Finder is the split view. I can hit Command-U and turn two tabs into a split pane. Oh. And then cool. just drag between them. And for the 10 bucks or whatever it is that Total Finder cost me, that's, it's, it's awesome. That might be worth 10 bucks to me, too. That's really cool. It is very handy. All right. Well, my first... Uh, pick for this week is a little iPhone and iPad app called Room Scan. I found a, I found I think I found this on uh, One Thing Well, and what it is is you can hold your iPhone up to each wall in a room, and you hold it there until it beeps, and you move to the next wall, and you do every wall in the room, and then you come back to the first one, and then you do one more. And it figures out based on the, I, I assume, the accelerometer and some kind of positioning that uh, it, it figures out the layout of your room. And it'll give you the square footage. It'll show you an outline drawing of the shape of your room. Uh, and it'll, it'll figure out how many walls there are and how long each wall is. It'll give you, like, the square footage of a room. I just used it to... Uh, to figure out how much I can write off on my taxes from my home office. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, and it did an amazing job. With I didn't have to tell it anything. I just hold it up to the walls, and it doesn't. It, it uses geometry to figure this stuff out. So there's no like you don't have to use laser levels or or sonic uh, rulers or anything like that. It's very cool. How does it? And you can print it. You can send it to an AirPrint printer, and then you can do like. You can get your outline of your room on a full page and draw in your furniture and stuff. Oh, for that's so cool. <laughs> redecorating. I, I, I'm going to love this. How does it know how, where the doors are? Um, that part I haven't figured out yet. It shows in the samples. It shows doors. Um, I've only done my office so far, and I didn't dig into it to figure out how they got those doors there. Okay. I think you have to tell it. I, I assume you have to tell it where doors yeah, are. Yeah, you must. Uh, I don't know how it could otherwise. But I know that I know that if you tap a wall when creating a new room, if you tap a wall on a previous diagram, it'll create floor plans like and create adjacent rooms and it may add the doors at that point. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, wow. it I, I have room to learn with it, but I'm really impressed with my initial result. You have uh, room to learn. <laughs> that's really Wait, cool well, and i should mention my office has one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen walls including all the like coves and and jutting walls and everything so is your, is it, your it room was like impressive a, an octagon with another little <laughs> po- module nook no it's a 70s um 
1970s like track home okay like ranch style and this is a basement room uh, in a walkout basement and so it's got like a fireplace oh that yeah. sticks out in the middle of it okay and then like my studio that i'm in right now is like a uh what do you call it an alcove no it's like a a, a a recess that was probably a closet at one point but it yeah so there are all these nooks and crannies in this room Cool. I would. I don't even know what shape it is overall. I think it's probably similar to a rectangle, but more of an L-shaped. Rec- yeah, L-shaped is not a rectangle anymore. I apologize. <laughs> oh, that looks really cool. I'm thinking I'm gonna try this out, and it's free. It's, it's great. There's a RoomScan Pro. I don't wow. remember what the difference is. Okay, well, this looks. Cool. I'll, I'll I'll link the I'll link the free version probably, but yeah. So, what's your second pick? Uh, my second pick is also a Mac app. Um, it's called, it's a gross name. It's called Lice Cap. Um, I knew a kid with one of those. We all had to go home early. Yeah, I don't really get why they named it that. It's probably an acronym. But basically, it's a screen capture tool that directly um, creates animated GIFs. Uh, you tell it what the frame rate is. You, you tell it what part of the screen to capture. You hit capture and do whatever you need to do. And then you hit stop and it puts a GIF in a folder on your desktop or wherever else. It's really, really easy. We, I use it all the time. It's, uh, it's great. What do you do with the, we'll call them gifts for your sake. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Old habits die hard. That's fine. Um, what do you do? Do you, uh, do you like just Dropbox those to people or do you put them online? Um, for the most part, they're, they're uh, consumable. They're pretty ephemeral. Um, I'll make a, uh, a GIF um, to show uh, a bit of my screen. <laughs> Um, like if something's happening on a web page, I need to send it to to a coworker or a friend. I'll do that real quick and then just delete the file. Um, Dropbox, not usually. I'll, I'll try drag it into a Skype window or into Slack. Sure. Oh, okay, that's cool. Use. Yeah. Um. Sometimes I'll I'll make like um. I'll use it to make um. GIFs to go up on on a website and to, like a promo, like an animated screenshot of an app or a, or an experience or like a little piece of an interaction. So that, that, you know, I'll crank the frame rate up and then save a nice big file and nice. then, um, and then use that on a web page somewhere as a, as a promo or like a marketing image kind of thing. Yeah. I could see that being definitely, there's a, there's a place where video is valid, but there's definitely room for the animated graphic interchange format files. Yes. Like what I did recently was, um, uh, captured myself scrolling up and down on a web page, got that animated file, um, and then put it inside one of those, you know, like uh, images of a of a of a an iMac with the, with the screen sure. empty. You put the image in there; it looks like it's yeah. in the you know. So that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, you place it. That yeah. was one of my uh, one of my picks last week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Place it would be perfect for that. Nice. All right. That's that's awesome. You're gonna like my second pick, I think. Maybe you may hate it. Actually, <laughs> okay. It's called Macaw. Oh yeah. I just that. I got my copy running yesterday. Um, it's it's a fluid. It's a it's a visual web design application, and I wouldn't say it's for beginners, but for anyone who's dealt with responsive design. It actually, it takes the idea of, of dragging pieces together visually 
and creating code to a point where it creates the cleanest code I've ever seen from one of these apps. And it makes, by default, responsive uh, layouts. And you can add breakpoints while you're designing and move things around based on the screen width. And when it generates your code, it gives you really clean markup and then very minimal CSS to make it all work. It's, it's very, I'm very impressed. I don't know if I love or hate Macaw yet. I also have it installed. I haven't really played with it a lot yet. Um, I think you and I both have a, an, may have an innate prejudice towards um, earlier iterations of this kind of tool, you know, the Dreamweaver oh, yeah. days, right? So I'm, oh, yeah. I'm very, I have lots of thoughts about WYSIWYG editors, but we'll leave that aside. Um, I'm very distrustful of, of this kind of thing, but from what I've seen of Macaw, it looks as close as you could get to yeah, exactly. like per- this perfect kind of tool. Well, it's almost, there are things that it knows to do that would take me way too long to do in just pure code in watching previews in a browser. It makes it really easy. And in the end, so far in my tests, it's produced the same or better code than I would have anyway. That's the thing. The code looks really clean. I don't know if it's, I guess it depends on the application and the, and, and the, the situation. I don't know if it's production ready, but it is so clean that as, as if, if nothing else, as a prototyping tool, mm-hmm. a visual prototyping tool that actually outputs code, this is as good as we've ever seen. Like it looks right. really, well, really cool. Well, and it gives you, it gives you the base. So you have your grid and you have your responsive like block elements. And even if you stop there and don't do any styling or colors in it, and then take it from there and start working with the CSS. It's still it's still providing I mean I love that you can set up your grid and then output all the elements you need to and it'll only output the parts of the grid you need. You don't have to include a whole CSS framework. Yeah, it's real smart. It and and it creates tiny CSS files that are really easy to take apart and rebuild. So I think I only have two gripes with um the, this kind of new crop of tools, but Macaw specifically, uh, from what I've seen of it so far. One is that, and I think this is the main one, you can't edit the code afterwards and then re-import it into Macaw, which is a big, uh, you know, it's a big thing to ask, so I'm not, you know, I'm not really taking off points, but it would be nice in the future, I think that where that where we could take that is, you know, export something from Macaw, make changes in the code and then bring it back into Macaw for more changes or to see how it looks or, or whatever. Yeah. I could see you so know? many potential complications with that. Oh, absolutely. It, it, like you said, it's understandable. Uh, and the other thing is whatever framework it's using to do the grid, they've made that choice for you. And as someone who's very much in the code web design, right. um, that's a lack of control that feels, you know, feels weird to me. But I mean, again, I can't really knock them for that because it's, it's kind of, you, you have to do, you have to make choices in making an application. So, I mean, this looks, yeah, it looks really cool. I would love it if it could output SAS. That's the thing. Like, that's where it's going to be going. Like, I, I hope it gets more modular in that way where you can tell it to do this or that or integrate yeah. with other tools. Have you seen a CSS hat? I have, though I've never tried it. It's, it's really cool. Uh, like, you can design, you, you can use layer styles in Photoshop and then output them as... SAS or SCSS or less or CSS and and then just apply them into your current style sheet and it's a really easy way to add like especially if you're working in like flat design with long shadows and stuff 
Makes it really easy. Really easy. Yeah. So many of these tools cropped up recently after um, Layer Vault released that um, Ruby library, the PSD.RB. I actually haven't um, used that. Yeah. So they, they released this library uh, that basically exposes Photoshop files to Ruby. And like you can go through the, the tree and like navigate files and layers and stuff. And then all these sorts of tools started cropping up that, that go dive into Photoshop files and, and do stuff Neat. with them. That's neat stuff, though. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last pick. Uh, last pick is something a little different, a little more fun. Um, I recently rewatched the 2010 A-Team uh, film with uh, Liam Neeson, Bradley Cooper, among others. And that is my third pick. Liam Neeson plays Mr. T, right? <laughs> uh, Liam Neeson plays Hannibal. Yeah. He loves it when a plan comes together. Yeah. Um, I thought this movie was a lot of fun, and it makes me very sad that they didn't get picked up for a sequel. Apparently, <laughs> they didn't make enough money. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I imagine and I imagine it was actually rife for a sequel. They could probably have made a, a whole series out of it. Yeah, but it would have been tons of fun. And I'm looking, You know what they could have done is they could have made a TV show. Yes, that would have been the perfect application for, for an ensemble <laughs> cast like this. I'm looking at the Wikipedia now. Their budget was $110 million and they made $177 million in the box office. If that's not enough to warrant a sequel, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I honestly don't know what the profit margin is on a typical Hollywood blockbuster movie. Yeah, I'm not sure. That actually seems kind of low. Maybe it does. I'd like once you, once you pay million. all your... I mean, you've got your production budget, but then you've also got all your like initial investors and uh, I'm sure additional fees and everything that would probably eat up that extra sixty oh, million pretty quickly. That's true, right? The budget doesn't include everyone you have to pay off afterwards. Yeah, right. Yeah, I guess I guess that's it. Um, but yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely worth a watch. It's on Netflix. Um, it's a good. It's a good two hours. I think. Uh, I think I know some people who would be able to explain that to me. I'll have to. I'll have Rob Corddry back on. I'll have to talk yeah. him into it. Oh man, that was a great episode, by the way. I really, I really love talking to him. But he says he d he doesn't want to come back on yet because he hasn't changed his workflow, <laughs> and and he feels like he has to have something new and nerdy to say. But I'm going to convince him either way. I was really. It kind of took me aback that well, Rob Cordry's on the show. Oh my god, that was, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, it was really cool. All right. My last pick is something that was introduced to me by Brother Gabriel. Uh, you, you may know him from Twitter. Um, I think it's Mosher is his last name. I've always been referring to him as Brother Gabriel, which he seems okay with. But anyway, um, he brought me, he, he knew I was a little bit, uh, we'll say, hungover at Macworld. And he brought me a bottle of this stuff called Black Blood of the Earth. Ooh. And it is a, I don't even, I, I, I was reading the science behind it on the website and it's all this like triple distilled cold brew coffee stuff. And it is um, extremely caffeinated and extremely flavorful. And it, like I had a, a sip less than what you would consider like a finger of scotch. I had less than that and I got dizzy. Oh my God. So. So, so a bottle of this stuff has a three-month shelf life, which actually makes it 
like a great investment because it's coffee for three months without having to brew anything, and you can just dilute it with water. Uh, he actually suggests uh, a three to one uh, black blood of the earth to vodka ratio. Oh no! Uh, he says it, it it gives it this like sweetness, this chocolate flavor. He wrote me a note. Uh, the guy from Funranium wrote me a note after I ordered my first bottle and uh, gave me instructions on what the limit, <laughs> how many milliliters I should maximum I should consume in a day. <laughs> and he's like, ta- he told me how to measure it with shot glasses and everything. Um, but uh, but yeah, this stuff is it's amazing. Like I've made cold brew coffee before. I've made uh, I have a toddy. Not machine, a toddy setup that you like basically cold cold press coffee for 24 hours. But this is a whole new level. So this is basically cold brew coffee. Yeah. Essentially. But it's just it's, a... It's extremely concentrated cold brew coffee. Wow. Like re- probably reduced and, and like concentrated. Oh my God. Wow. I will link, I will link the page where he explains in detail... The process. Yeah, I'm on that page now. It's this big article, pictures. That yeah. sounds dangerous. I wow. I'm actually not a coffee drinker, so I'm going to stay away from this already. Like, just I don't think I should. <laughs> yeah, and he warned me that uh, that women should be especially careful because they're more um, generally more affected by caffeine than men. Oh, I didn't know that. And my wife is she uh, if she has like a half calf latte at 8 a.m she won't fall asleep until about 6 a.m the next morning oh wow yeah she's extremely affected by caffeine yikes yeah but that's okay so she just avoids it and no one drinks my coffee so i'm happy (laughs) yeah the animals aren't gonna get into it yep no i hope not it's actually fatal oh is it i didn't know that either coffee well caffeine's a caffeine caffeine in 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 large doses is fatal for humans too. Yes. It's a poison. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like nicotine. I guess, uh, you know, animals have much lower body weight. So right. Exactly. Exactly. Chocolate and nicotine and caffeine are things that you have to, uh, keep out of reach, hmm. especially if you have a, an animal that likes to tear open wrappers and go for things. Yeah. Did you know sugarless gum is, is, can be toxic for animals too? I didn't know that. Is it the aspartame? I think, I think it is. I can't remember exactly which chemical in most sugarless gums, but if they eat even uh, kind of half a pack of like Trident sugarless gum, you better get them to the vet fast because the symptoms can take a while to show up. I just learned this last week. The symptoms can take a while to show up, but eventually they can go into like seizures, vomiting and death. Wow. I, I had no idea. I didn't either. There are so many things and hops, raw hops are fatal to dogs. Well, luckily, we don't keep those around the house. Right. Like, beer itself is, is generally not an issue. Uh, but the raw hops prior to brewing can be very, very toxic. I did not know any of this. I wonder how many things out there I, I, I shouldn't be feeding my cat. <laughs> <laughs> every, time I, every time I try something um, creative, I get yelled at because, don't you know that's poisonous? <laughs> Okay, so you are Zach Kane on Twitter? Yep, Z-A. Z-A- Z-A-K. Oh, I'm sorry, Zed, because you're Canadian, right? <laughs> yep, from Canada. Sorry. Z-A-K-K-A-I-N. And, uh, and you have a, a semi-maintained website at draftingcode.com. I like that web. I like the URL. 
Yeah, I don't know how that wasn't taken. I only got it recently, <laughs> but uh, that's where I run my my Jekyll blog from that I don't nice. blog very often. Nice. All right, is there anywhere else you would like people to look up? Um, actually, yeah. Could I plug my podcast? Please do. Awesome. So I have a podcast called Type Talk. Uh, it's all about web typography and related issues. Uh, we've only been going for seven episodes. It's me and uh, co-host Dennis Gable, who is Grey Ghost Visuals on Twitter. You can find our podcast at uh, typetalk.tv. Awesome. And we uh, registered the .tv. I'm not entirely sure why, because it's not a video podcast, but, uh, you know, such is life. Maybe someday it will be. Someday. And then you'll be yeah. prepared. We'll try and get sponsors. Right on. All, all three of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't be self-deprecating. -depre no, it's still a new podcast, so it's totally fine. All right. We're, we're only seven episodes in. But yeah, um, if you like web type, go check that out. Awesome. All right, I'm going to do our last sponsor of the day, and then, uh, and then we'll sign off. Cool. I always announce that I'm going to do a sponsor. I don't know why I don't. Not, I suppose it'd be rude to just start reading a sponsor script. Well, you know, I always thought um, that uh, you you edited them in afterwards. I used to, uh, but only on days when I didn't get the reads in time. And you got the I very white tried. Going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of missed that. Yeah, that was fun. Someday, <laughs> someday I'll do it live. I'll just I'll throw a, a modulator on and <laughs> yeah. anyway. HostGator.com, uh, a premier web hosting provider. If you're looking to start a website, HostGator can get you started with monthly hosting plans, one-click installs, and tons of other features that make getting your site up and running easy. If you're a more advanced user or a business, HostGator can take care of you with reseller plans, VPS, and dedicated servers, and HostGator guarantees 99.9% .9 uptime no matter your size or needs. If you're a WordPress user, you're going to love their one-click installs and optimized hosting platform. When you host with HostGator, you get unlimited disk space and bandwidth. They have free site builder tools that are easy to use, but if you find yourself needing any help, they have 24-7 support to ensure that everything is running smoothly. So head on over to HostGator.com to learn more, and when you decide to purchase, don't forget to use the coupon code DANSENTME and get 30% off of everything at HostGator.com. All right. Well, thanks for being here, Zach. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, this, is, this has been a good conversation. I appreciate it. I appreciate um, you inviting me on. <laughs> my pleasure. You did the audio drop, and that is definitely something that everyone should do. If you're interested in being on the show, um, just do a two- to five-minute recording, just introducing yourself and, and telling me a little about you, and send it to brettterfshire.com slash audio drop. And, uh, and you can find me as TT Scoff everywhere, uh, from GitHub to Twitter and app.net and everything in between. And, uh, and you can find me at uh, brettterpshire.com. So I look forward to hearing from more people, and I would like to thank everybody very much for listening this week, and, uh, and especially you, Zach. Thank you, Brett. Yep. Everyone, have a great week. <laughs>